Zechariah 9, 14 to 17. Uh, at first sight, that doesn't look as though it's a particularly interesting portion of scripture. But once you take a close look at it and delve into it, you start to discover depths that weren't immediately obvious. So uh, consequently, we've ended up with a trilogy of talks uh, just on that one passage. Although tonight, as we come to the final part of the trilogy, I have added in one more verse. We're straying into chapter 10 and including verse 1 as well. But in the first part of, of that trilogy, um, we particularly considered the attributes of the Lord uh, as demonstrated by the various terms uh, that he used of himself. And from those terms, uh, we saw him to be the one who is eternally, unchangeably, self-existent, the ruler of the universe, who has authority over all things, and the all-powerful Lord of hosts. That's not bad to have on your CV, is it? <laughs> Yet mere men can know this uh, amazing God, uh, because he's a personal God, and he, he's gracious enough to enable us to know him. Last time we moved on to his actions that spring from those attributes and we saw that he, he separates, he summons, he shields and saves his people. All that he does is for the good of his people just as all that a good shepherd does is for the good of his sheep. And like a good shepherd he chooses his sheep, he, he calls his sheep uh, by name, he protects and defends his sheep and he brings his sheep uh, to a place of safety, into the, the sheepfold. Well, this time we're going to go on to consider his aims. We've had his attributes, the actions that spring from those, uh, those attributes and now the, the aims that he has uh, in those actions. Why does he do those things for his people? What is he trying to achieve? What are his objectives? And you see, throughout these verses, we're not only told what the Lord is like and what the Lord will do for his people, we're also shown what he intended to achieve by doing these things. And we're going to see that uh, just as his actions are for the good of his people, so the objectives are to do with his people. Uh, we're going to see that the Lord wants to have audacious people. The Lord wants to have attractive people. And the Lord wants to have asking people. So, so firstly, audacious people. We read in verse 15, The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar, as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. The NIV there says destroy instead of devour, but I think that really misses the, the force of the metaphor that's being used. Uh, the ESV and the New King James both have devour, and I think that's uh, the, the correct translation, and it helps to, to point us in the direction of the picture that's being used here, now, what can you think of that can be said to devour? 
I think we'll recognise the picture that's being used if we look at Numbers 23, 24, where we read, Behold, a people as a lioness, it rises up, and as a lion, it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. And when it's talking about lioness there, it's not talking about a woman who plays football for England. Uh, and when it talks about a lion, it's not talking about a man or woman who plays rugby for the British and Irish lions. Now, the reference is to the king of beasts. It's a reference to lions and lionesses being powerful beasts that persist until their prey is devoured. That's the picture that Zechariah is using here. He's foretelling that Judah will rise up like a lion or a lioness and not rest until the prey has been devoured. And it's a description that has its basis in what the Lord has said long before. Um, Genesis 49 verse 9, we read, Judah is a lion's cub. From, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares to rouse him. You see, Judah was a, a lion's cub, you know, a little lion, a cuddly lion. But the time is going to come when they'll no longer be a cub. They will be a full-grown lion and have the power of a lion. So the Lord's people are being likened to the king of beasts, to a mighty lion that devours its prey. The pictures of irresistible power. What can prevail against a lion? What can stand before a lion? The, the, the very roar of a lion is a fearful sound. I remember a good many years ago now when Faith and I visited Whipsnade Zoo and we were there when the lions were being fed and they, they prowled around their, their big cage. Uh, they roared so loudly that you could, could literally fear, feel the, the ground shake and it made your ears hurt, it made your head spin. It was a frightening experience, even when they were behind those big bars. So uh, you certainly don't mess with a lion. Remember, this is in the context, though, uh, of Zechariah foretelling that time in the future when Judah would rise up against her Greek oppressors and overthrow them and drive her out. Judah would have been like a sleeping lion for, for centuries, and the Greeks felt safe in their position as, as captors of, of the lion. But Zechariah is foretelling the time when the lion would eventually be roused, overthrow the Greeks. Uh, that, that would be as certain and complete uh, as the fate of a lion's prey. Now, I said the Lord wants audacious people. And you might be asking, well, where's the audacity in this? Well, Zechariah said... They shall devour, but how did he say they would do it? Well, the ESV says, they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. Now, that's a, a very literal translation. It doesn't really seem to make a great deal of sense. Uh, the NIV gives the sense, I think, rightly, by saying they will destroy and overcome with sling stones. So they'd fight against well-trained highly skilled, heavily armed, battle-hardened Greek soldiers and be armed with nothing more than slings. I suggest that's pretty audacious. 
The odds seem to be so heavily stacked against them, yet they destroy and overcome, as a lion destroys and overcomes its prey, as the Lord said they would do. Uh, and, and they do it with sling stones. And of course, such audacity wasn't without precedent, was it? Sling stones immediately bring to mind David and Goliath. You know, the odds were so heavily stacked against David, yet he had the audacity to go and challenge the mighty Goliath in his armour and with his huge weapons, uh, even though he was just a little boy himself. What, why? Well, look at 1 Samuel 17, 45 to 46. This is what David said as he stood before Goliath. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. The Lord had been defied and David, his trust wasn't in himself. His audacity sprang from trust in the Lord. He, he knew the Lord to be God. He knew uh, the world would be brought to see that the Lord was God. His audacity, his boldness, his risk-taking sprang from his knowledge of God. And that's exactly in keeping what we read in Daniel 11.32. Uh, we read there, He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenants, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Or, or the NIV says they shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Why was Judah so audacious in overthrowing the Greeks? Well, we see it there in Zechariah 9, 14 and, and 15. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them. You see, they had the promise of, of protection. They would be shielded and kept. We saw that last week, didn't we? Who would shield them? The Lord Almighty would shield them. Well, I think we must ask ourselves, how audacious are we? When we look at the world around us and we see the lost around us, do we note their hostility? Do we note their attitude towards us and mentally weigh up the odds and take a judicious step back? I fear that often that, that could be the case. And we live in a society, don't we, which is becoming increasingly risk-averse. You know, in the workplace, you can do nothing until you've done a risk assessment. And then you have to define how you're going to manage the risk. If you can't adequately uh, manage the risk, well, don't you dare attempt to try it. Now, that's um, probably quite appropriate in, in the workplace, uh, no doubt people have differing views on whether it's over the top or, or, or very necessary. But you understand that uh, in the workplace there are plenty of pros and cons. 
But whether or not you think that approach is good or bad in the workplace, it really should have no place in the Christian life. Why? Because it leaves God out of the picture. If he's our shield, where is the risk? We should be audacious. We should be bold. No, never mind that it's boys against giants or sling stones against swords and spears. If we know our God, we know what sling stones can do. If we know our God, we know that he can make us as invincible as lions. Well, may we then be roused from our, our slumber. Uh, he keeps and protects us so that we can be audacious in serving him. In the words of William Carey, we ought to have every reason to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Well, as ever, uh, the best example of all this is the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? Uh, in Revelation 5, 4-6 we read, And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. This is amazing, isn't it? This is, this is wonderful. You know, we're told that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, had conquered. He's destroyed and overcome as powerfully as any lion devours its prey. And you'd expect John to then go on uh, and, and describe a wonderful specimen of a, a mighty lion, wouldn't you? And what did he see? I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. How did the Lord Jesus Christ triumph as the lamb of the tribe of Judah? Well, not by means of his great might, not by means of his great power, but by being the lamb that was slain. What chance would a mere lamb have against all the powers of sin and death and hell? And yet this lamb triumphed as mightily as any great lion. Now we're all too aware of our, our weakness, aren't we? Uh, but maybe not be timid because of that weakness. Remember that our God tells us that his strength is made perfect in weakness. If we really know him and his strength, then we'll be audacious. We're told that the, the very power that raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead is at work in us. I mean, that's mind-boggling, isn't it? I mean, it's mind-boggling that he was raised from the dead. Even more mind-boggling to think that the power that did that is working in us. Well, do we believe that? Do we seek to demonstrate that before uh, the world around us? So we're to be audacious people. But next we see that the Lord wants to have attractive people. Verse 16 begins by saying, On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. That, that's one of the Lord's actions that we considered 
last time. He would save them when they audaciously rose up against the Greeks. He will bring his people to a place of safety. But then continuing in verse 16 and 17, we find this lovely description of such saved people. Uh, we read there, For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. Now, before we consider what that tells us, we, we need to attempt to sort out a textual issue, because the various translations uh, differ. Uh, the ESV that we've had read says, For how great is his goodness, and how great his beauty. King James Version used the same words. Uh, so that seems to be speaking of, of the greatness of the Lord's goodness and the greatness of his beauty. However, the NIV says how attractive and beautiful they will be. And that seems to be saying that it's those that the Lord saves that will be attractive and beautiful. The New King James Version is different again. Uh, it says, for how great is its goodness and how great its beauty so that seems to be speaking of, of the land being good and beautiful. So which is right? Is this speaking of the people or the land or the Lord? Well, apparently the Hebrew can quite legitimately be understood in any of those ways. So Hebrew grammar doesn't really help us to resolve the question. So we're going to have to go with what, uh, what seems to be most in keeping with the context uh, before we do that, there's one other point of difference that we need to notice between the translations, which has a bearing on the context and perhaps helps us to decide. That is the question of the tense. Um, the ESV has for how great is his goodness, how great his beauty. So it's using the, the present tense. The NIV has how attractive and beautiful they will be. So it's using the future tense, which is right. Well, the fact is the Hebrew is in the future tense, and that immediately suggests to me that it must either be referring to the people of the people or the land, because to say that the Lord will be beautiful, will be attractive, isn't really saying anything, because he always is. He always has been. He always will be. So does it refer to the people or the land. Well, the phrase that immediately was immediately preceded by, for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. Or in the NIV, they will sparkle in his land, like jewels in a crown. That seems to be speaking uh, of the beauty of the people of God, the people that God will save. And then the phrase is followed by saying, uh, grain will make the young men flourish and new wine the young, young women. So that's also speaking of the people. And remember that this is all in the context of the Lord their God having saved them as the flock of his people. So I think it's best to take it that how attractive and beautiful they will be is the right translation. And it's speaking of the Lord's saved people. So we've been told 
three things that will be true of those that the Lord saves as, as the flock of his people. They will sparkle like jewels in a crown. Uh, they will be attractive and beautiful. Uh, grain will make them thrive. Notice that each of these things will be true of them. When will these things be true of them? Well, the answer is that these things will be true of them when the Lord has saved them as the flock of his people. Uh, the clear and important lesson is that no one is saved because these things are true of them. Rather, these things become true of them because the Lord has saved them. I can't help but notice the contrast here between the stones that are the jewels of a crown and the rough and ready sling stones uh, that were to be used in defeating the Greeks. Now, those sling stones, well, they're of no value. They were of no beauty. They were simply lying around on the ground. They could be left there or picked up and thrown. Nobody cared. In a sense, that's what fallen mankind is like. Aimless, purposeless, feeling insignificant, wanting to feel valued but failing. Those that the Lord has saved, well, they're no longer like rough and ready sling stones. They become jewels. They're, they're precious stones. They're not just lying around uncared for. They're, they're set in a crown. They belong to the king and they're valued by him. And you see, it's not just that they belong to the Lord. They're, see, they're seen to belong to him. We're told they shall shine on his land. Or according to NIV, they will sparkle in his land. So reminiscent of what we read in Malachi, and uh, chapter 3, verse 17, when uh, the Lord says, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Now just as Zechariah 9, 16 begins by saying, On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people, so here in Malachi... We have in the day. What day? Well, the day when I make up my treasured possession. I'll make up my jewels. And it then says, they will be mine. What's more, they, they'll be seen to be his, because we go on to read in Malachi 3.18, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. How will that distinction be seen how will it manifest itself well it's very interesting to, uh, to see that in the niv zechariah 9 17 goes on to say how attractive and beautiful they will be now i know the esv speaks in terms of goodness and beauty uh, and the word good is a perfectly acceptable translation of the hebrew but we need to recognize that the idea idea conveyed by this particular Hebrew word is not so much good in a, a moral sense, it's not so much good as opposed to evil, but good in the sense of being desirable, of being appealing and wholesome. So I think the NIV has done a, a good job here in speaking of them as being attractive and beautiful. It's all too often the case, isn't it, that, that Christians and Christian fellowships in perhaps a proper desire to be seen to be different, to, to maintain that distinction between the righteous and the wicked, actually make themselves very 
unattractive. Now, we might say, come, with our mouths, but the message that is actually received, that, that's perceived by those round about, really comes across as, well, keep away from us. You, you don't really want anything to do with us. Uh, our, our attitudes, our demeanour, our language, our dress, these things can all militate against people being attractive, can scream out, we're boring, we're old-fashioned, we're irrelevant, we're out of touch. How we need to be working hard at being attractive people. Now, of course, we mustn't make the opposite mistake and attempt to be attractive and beautiful in the way that the world views uh, attractiveness and beauty. The world views attractiveness and beauty almost exclusively in terms of outward appearance, doesn't it? You know, attractiveness has become equated with good looks. It's viewed as something to be looked at, admired, copied. Um, increasingly, the thinking seems to be that it's to be achieved by trying to look like the hottest celebrity at the moment. But you see, as the jewels in the lion's crown, we're not to be attractive and beautiful merely in the sense of looking good and being admired. Rather, we're to be attractive in the proper sense of the word. That is, we are to attract people. We're to draw people. Our attractiveness and beauty, while different from the world's idea, should nonetheless be evident to them and appealing to them and draw them like a magnet. Attraction, magnetic attraction. Remember Jesus said in John 12, 32, but when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Jesus attracting people to himself. And he does that through us. It's the Lord's desire that we should be attractive in that we draw men to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we're told that grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. I don't think it's significant that the young women are said to get the new wine and the young men only get grain. And I think the point here is that the Lord promises to give his saved people an abundance of various good things. Good things for our good. And we're to partake of them and enjoy them. You know, there's nothing attractive about the believer who does not enjoy the good things that God gives. It is attractive to see the Lord's people thriving on the good things that he gives. So we're to be not only audacious people, but attractive people. And then finally, let us see that the Lord wants us to have asking people. And this is where we move into chapter 10, verse 1. Uh, we read there, Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain from the Lord who makes the storm clouds and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. Now we've just seen uh, the promise of plenty of grain and new wine, haven't we? And of course that depends on good harvests and good harvests require plenty of rain. Who sends the rain? Well, of course, it's the Lord. So if he's promised grain and wine, surely it goes without saying that he'll send the necessary rain. 
But you see, the exhortation is given to ask grain from the Lord. You see the point? Even though he's promised to send it, we are nonetheless to ask him for it. Of course, good harvests don't only require plenty of rain, uh, that they need it, uh, it's needed at the right time, isn't it? Um, some of the effects of global warming we're seeing at the moment it sort of highlights that, that. We're getting loads of rain when we don't want it, and when it's needed, dry as a bone, causing havoc with, with world harvests and so on. So it's not just that we need to pray for rain, but we need to pray for rain at, at the right times. So our asking is to be even more specific. We're not only to ask rain from the Lord, we're to ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain. Rain at the proper time. Rain when it's needed. So you see, the Lord's saved people are to be asking people. And we're not merely to ask you know, in a generalised, God bless mummy way. No, we're to specifically ask for what's really needed. We're to be people of real prayer, people of, of pointed prayer. And I think it's true to say that we won't be audacious people or attractive people unless we're also asking people. Uh, in the NIV, uh, Zechariah verse 1 begins by saying, Ask the Lord for rain in the springtime. And I suggest those first three words would make an excellent motto for us all. Ask the Lord. Ask the Lord. May it not merely be a motto. May it be what we do. May it be what characterises us. May it be, if you like, a default setting. Whatever, ask the Lord. May we ask the Lord because we know what he's like and because we know what he's done and because we want to be audacious and attractive people for him and then spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen.